So we saw last week, we talked about how chapter 13 through chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles is one unit. And it's telling the story about how David had a desire, King David had a desire to see the Ark of the Covenant be brought to Jerusalem, which was the new capital. And we talked about how the Ark of the Covenant is, is, was the place that represented where God would meet with His people, where God would dwell with His people. In other words, it represents His presence. And so you'll, you'll see in the first slide what picture that we saw yesterday, I don't know how, or last week, I don't know how clear that is, but you can kind of see there's tents, like a, a whole uh, circle of tents, and in the middle there's this, what's called the tabernacle, and in the middle of that tabernacle, what's called the holy place, and that pillar of fire is actually what was there during the time of God's presence would be sort of hidden in this pillar of fire, and it was a visible uh, example of God saying, I am here with you, I'm in the midst of you, I'm a holy God, but I love you, and I want to be in the midst of you, even though you're a sinful people. And so the idea of bringing the ark back was the idea of recognizing that we need God's presence. And we need to prioritize our life, our worship around that. And so we saw last week that what those priorities were. And we, we saw at the end of that section that the, the, really what we need to do is make sure that we are worshiping, that we're coming near to God the way He dictates. So, so, so that David made sure that the ark of God was, was brought in God's way. That they were doing things God's way. And so we saw there was a, a bit of a difficult lesson. That, that when they didn't do it God's way, when they didn't inquire of God about how to bring his presence in, and Uzzah tries to put his hand, or goes to put his hand on the Ark of the Covenant, what happens to him? He dies. He's struck dead. In fact, it says specifically that God killed him. And we think, man, that's harsh. But we have to realize God did that actually out of mercy to the rest of his people to say, you need to take what I say seriously. You need to take my holiness seriously. And what we see in the rest of chapter 15 and going into chapter 16 is not only do they take it seriously, but they recognize the mercy that God had shown them. They're reminded afresh about how good this God is and how much they really, really do need to make sure they bring in His holy presence or to make sure they are pursuing His holy presence. And so really what we see happening here in this section is they are responding now to God's presence. They're responding to the fact that God is with them and in that we're going to see some great lessons for us. Because here's the truth. Real worship, authentic worship, is always a response to God's goodness. Always. And so we're going to see in this section uh, three, three ways the goodness of God should motivate our worship. So, quickly, starting in verse 16 of chapter 15, here's the first thing I want you to see. That is, it's the covenant of God that motivates structured worship. Verse 16 says... And then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites. Remember, the Levites were uh, of the tribe of, of Levi, and they were the ones that God appointed to lead worship. And so David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments of music, string instruments, harps, cymbals, air guitar, voices uh, raised with resounding joy. And then he goes to list who the Levites appointed from verses 17 down to basically about verse 24. Now, now, here's what's going on. Really simple. David is appointing the right people to do the right things. There's a reason I don't sing on the worship team. There's a reason I don't do a lot of things. Because there's a lot of things that need to be done by God's people that help us serve one another that I'm not fit to do. 
But one of the things that God wants to do is he wants to make sure, he, he, orga- he calls us to be organized in a way that there's a structure to our worship, that the right people are doing the right things so that everybody is built up, so that everybody learns to follow God correctly. Now, if you drop down to verse 27, we see it says, David was clothed with a robe. I'm sorry, verse 25, I apologize. So David and the elders of Israel, and the captain over thousands, they went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when, the, when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Now, now here's what's happening here. Remember, the Levites had done it wrong, and actually the Levites weren't really involved the first time they tried to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But now they're doing it according to God's word, they're doing it right. And that's really what's being um, sort of alluded to here by the author of Chronicles, is that when it says that God helped the Levites, it means they went back to God's word and said, okay God, how do we do this? And God said, here's how you do it. And so as they do this, they're now bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and they're doing so, notice, with great joy. And this shows that they have faith. They're believing that, yes, this is good. We're doing what God would have us do. And this is what structure does for us. Structure clarifies for us where we really need help. That's what it did for the Levites. Where do we need help? Some of the things that we ask God to help us for are things that we should really just do ourselves. Sometimes we're like, we, I, think, I think we do this maybe because we're trying to prove to ourselves that God's there and available. Which really isn't a good thing to do. But we do that, and we ask God for things that we don't need help with. But then we do lots of stuff that we don't realize we do need God's help with. And so the more we stick to the structures that God has given us, the more we recognize where we actually need help. What we need Him to help us do. So what happens next? Verse 27. So David with clothes, with a robe of fine linen, and all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Chenaniah the music uh, master with the singers. And David also wore a linen ephod. And thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with cymbals uh, of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, uh, making music with string instruments and harps. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, that's Jerusalem, that Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. Now, this is interesting. I want you to notice, first and foremost, and this is why we call in this first point, that it's the covenant of God that motivates structured worship, that the author of Chronicles uses this term, one, two, three, four, at least four times in this section. I think there's another time that I, that I missed. He, he doesn't just say the Ark of God or the Ark. He says the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He wants to remind the readers, the Holy Spirit wants to remind us, that this is not just about a box again, like we said last week. This is about God. And that these, this structure helped these guys uh, get excited about who God was afresh. And here's what's interesting as well. As they're celebrating, as there's all this celebration and moving the ark into Jerusalem, what happens? David leads the way. I should say this too, by the way, when it says he, he wore a linen ephod like the priests, um, it doesn't necessarily mean he wore a priestly garment, but they, the, the idea of wearing linen, it's, it's a light a material, you don't sweat much. And so the idea of God commanding that the priests wear linen probably is a sense of God saying, listen, this is not about your effort. It's about my presence. And so being dressed in linen is in in some ways a sense to say, God, we know it's not going to be all that we do for you, but what you've done for us, which we'll talk more about in a minute. 
But there's a reality that, that, that as they do this, David leads the way. And he's, man, he's excited, about, he's excited about the Lord. He's excited about what God has done. He's excited about seeing the presence of God in the midst of his people again. And so he's celebrating with enthusiasm. He's whirling about. And what happens? Michael, who in Chronicles is only identified as Saul's daughter. But you guys are Bible students. Who else is Michael related to? You guys remember? Well, Saul, but who else? David. It's David's wife. It's one of David's wives, okay? But the, the author here wants to just point out, this is kind of Saul's heritage. He didn't really seek after God, but David is. That's kind of what he's doing. But what happens when Michael sees David celebrating, she's like, what's up with that? Now, we can be the same way, can't we? We can be the kind of people, listen, we can be the kind of people that when we see enthusiasm, we go, what's up with that? We, we, we want people to, we like people to have sincere faith. That's a good thing. We don't want anybody to be hypocrites. But don't get too excited about Jesus. Now the other mistake we can make is say, let's all get excited about Jesus and whatever happens must be of God. That's also a mistake. And it's interesting because even when we get into the New Testament, when the New Testament begins to sort of dictate the, what our worship should look like, it has both these elements. There needs to be order or structure and there needs to be openness. In fact, let me show you how this works. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, here's what it says. Paul writes, he says, If you claim to be a prophet, that's someone who would speak in the service to say, this is what God's saying to us today. If you claim to be a prophet or you think you're spiritual, you should recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord himself. Now here's what Paul was saying in this context. Listen, Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 14 that there has to be order in worship. And he's saying this to a church that he commended for how expressive they were. For how open to the things of God's Holy Spirit they were. This was a church, 1 Corinthians, that was open to do supernatural things all the time. And he commended them for it. And he should. As God's people, we should be open to, we have a supernatural God. We should be open to the things that God does supernaturally. But he also commands them. He says, listen, this is from God himself. There has to be structure. In fact, structure is there because it helps us. Look what he, he says, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, but if you do not recognize this, you yourself will not be recognized. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, to say what God once said. But don't, and don't forbid speaking in tongues. That's, if you don't know, speaking in tongues is being able to speak a language that you, can't, you don't know naturally. So like, I don't speak any French. Uh, or maybe better we would say, if I, don't, I don't speak any Swahili. And if I could just burst out and, and praise God in Swahili, that would be a gift of tongues, okay? He says, if you, don't, don't forbid that gift for being used. He says, but listen, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Now, now I want to be really clear about this because I, 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 I want you guys to know my heart. One of the reasons we, we've been praying for a church building that we've now received is because we want to see our congregations smaller. We actually want to be 100 people or less. This is why. One of the reasons for this is so that we can know each other. As the church gets bigger, it's easy to hide. And I don't know if you, you like coming to service because it's, it's starting to grow and you can kind of sneak in and sneak out and nobody really knows you. But we're going to find you. I just want you to know. <laughs> we're going to find you. And we want to know you. Listen, because we're not busy bodies. We want to be nosy about your life. We want to help you follow Jesus. And we need you to help us follow Jesus. Because relationship is a huge part of being Jesus followers. But also, listen, the Bible's clear 
that one of the ways we help each other is by these supernatural gifts. And it's very difficult to operate in those things in a bigger church because you either got to do the whole microphone thing and the guy up front. I'm not saying that's wrong, but that, that creates a whole different dynamic, doesn't it? I mean, a lot of, some of you guys have, have prophetic gifts, but you would never stand up front. But maybe if the Lord moves you, you might stand up and say something in a crowd of 60. You know what I'm saying? And so this, this is a thing that's really important for us to understand. That God wants us to be responding to him in a way that is structured. And why? Because God has structured how we relate to him. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is God saying, here are, you, you might say, here are the ground rules for our relationship. That's what a covenant is. So when you get married, if you married people know this, when you get married, in a sense, you're making a covenant. You're saying, it's till death do us part. You're saying, it's you and you alone. You're saying, all the things that we have are shared in common. You're making a serious covenant, and it's out of love, isn't it? This is what God does with us. And so if you break that covenant, that marriage covenant, there's some serious and very painful consequences. But when you keep that covenant and you invest in the relationship that's based on that covenant, there's fruitfulness and there's joy. How much more with our God, who's made this amazing covenant with us as New, Christian, New Testament Christians, we have this new covenant based on the finished work of Jesus, based on His blood, where we can know God as our Father. We can go right into His presence, that we can know we're completely forgiven. And He says, I want you to worship me according to my covenant. So the, the, the commands or the, the guidelines, the structure that he gives for that worship, it's so that there, we can see that there is a structure to how we relate to God. So if you're here today and, and you're going, okay, relationship with God, that sounds good. I want to have a relationship with God, but I kind of want to do it like, fill in the blank. That's the wrong way to approach this. This is God we're talking about. The creator of the universe. And it makes perfect sense that he would dictate how we are to relate to him. Does that make sense? All right. So the covenant of God motivates us towards structured worship. That's the first thing. Second thing, the generosity of God motivates extravagant worship. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. And so they brought the ark of God and they set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Now, just to understand what's going on here. In fact, let me actually, let me read verse 3 too. It says, Then he distributed in the name of the Lord, uh, was distributed to everyone of Israel, both man and woman, to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So l let me be really clear what's going on here. First and foremost, when it says that they, they, they bring the ark in and they make this burnt offering and peace offering, we need to know what those things are to know what's actually happening. The burnt offering had to do uh, with us, uh, kind of God's people recognizing that God had provided a way for them to be reconciled to Him. And so the burnt offering was a way to say, we acknowledge that God and we're yours because you've made a way for us to be reconciled with you. Is, you following me that? Yep. The peace offering, listen, was about saying, now that we're reconciled, God, we are recognizing that we can enjoy relationship with you. So reconciliation and relationship, these things are tied together, but they are distinct things. 
And I, and I want to bring this up because this is one of the things that is, sometimes keeps us from responding in worship. It's because we think, gosh, I, 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 <coughs> I do believe that Jesus died for my sins. I do believe that, that he's forgiven me. I, I, I think I'm reconciled with God, but I don't know why things aren't moving forward. It's almost like you've said, I've, kind of, I've, I've acknowledged the burn offering, but I don't know anything about this peace offering. This is often what keeps us from responding to God in worship. Because what happens is, we take this kind of idea of burnt offering, reconcile with God, and we stay right there. As long as I understand what the gospel is, I can stay there. As long as I, I get my head around good teaching on this, I'll stay right there. Now, we have to have that. We have to have our head around the burnt offering, the, the, the way we're reconciled to God. But God reconciles us that we'd move into relationship. That's the peace offering. So when they do this, they are acknowledging before God, God, you've done this great thing for us. And so, now, it, when they're doing this offering, don't think like, okay, one sheep or one bull for the whole nation. They are, the people are bringing literally thousands upon thousands of animals to be slaughtered uh, in the name of these offerings. Now, that might be offensive to some of you. I apologize. If you want to talk about that afterwards, we can. But just, I want you to see that this is, there's a lot of meat being produced, is the, is the point. So what happens? Does God say, that's mine, let that burn, it's all for me? No. David does what was meant to happen. He distributes among the people. In other words, they're celebrating God's generous gift of salvation in choosing them as his people and making a covenant with them. They're celebrating that. And how does that generosity, what happens with that generosity? It overflows to God's people. Can you, can you maybe see a parallel for us in the New Testament? That as we recognize how generous God is to us, that we want to be generous to one another. We want to say, God, how, how would you have me give? Where would you have me give? With my time, treasure, and talent. This is what, this is what worship does. Now, because on the verse 4 it says, And he appointed, David appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate or remember to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Then it names the people that, that were doing some of this. And it says in verse 6 that Benai and Jehaziel, uh, the priest, regularly blew trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. We're going to come back to that word regularly in a minute. But I want you to notice something. The three things, kind of the three, uh, sort of f the framework, this kind of triangular framework for what the worship was supposed to meant to look like in, in Jerusalem around this Ark of the Covenant. The priests were appointed to commemorate, that has caused the people to remember, to give thanks and to praise. We're going to talk about praise and commemoration in the last point. But I want to pull your attention to this idea of thanking God. Because this is such a huge, important thing that we miss so much. See, thanking God really is an acknowledgement of how generous He's been. That's what it is. Now, a lot of people talk about the importance of gratitude. I've, I've heard a lot of people who aren't particularly, uh, aren't necessarily people of faith, who talk about the need to, be, to have gratitude, to appreciate what you have. This is way beyond that. This is not just having an appreciation of what you have. This is about recognizing who gives you every good gift. It's, it's about pointing or directing your gratitude in the right place. Interesting. When, when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he talks about 
the broken state of humanity, the fallen state of humanity. And he, he, he describes it in part as thanklessness. Listen to this. In Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul writes. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I think it flows well. He says, humanity knows the truth about God because he has made it obvious to him. In other words, through creation, unless we want to be blind to that, it's obvious there's a creator who's given us this beautiful world. And for, he says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky... Through everything God has made, they can clearly see his invisible attributes, his, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they know God, or at least know there's got to be a God. But they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. See, this is the thing. One of the, 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 the things that our unbelieving hearts do is, we might have gratitude for something, but we don't direct that gratitude to God because we don't want to acknowledge Him. This is our sinfulness. This is when we say we're sinners, this is kind of what we mean by it. We don't want to acknowledge that the good things in our life are from God. We don't want to acknowledge that. And God says, no, that's, there's no worship until you start with that. Interesting. Paul writes later on, um, uh, Paul writes later on to the church of Thessalonia, uh, the Thessalonians, he says this, in everything, it's a command, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, because we have a God who hasn't just given us every good gift, but a God who's control over everything, even for the bad stuff, we can give God thanks. You know why? Because God's promised to work all things together for good. For those of us who are believers, we have this assurance that even the bad stuff is going to work out for the good stuff in the end. Guaranteed. So even in the bad stuff, we can give thanks. This is why people pray for their food. Hey, Paul, When Paul talks about this in 1, uh, 1 Timothy, he says, False teachers will say it's wrong to be married and to eat certain foods. He says, But God created those foods to be eaten, notice, with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Do you know why we give thanks before we eat? It's not some religious thing, and it's definitely not this idea that, oh, we have to pray for the food, or it will turn bad in our tummies. In fact, it's funny, some people, there's a comedian who talks about this, how some Christians seem to pray as if they're going to change the sort of the quality of the food, you know? Lord, thank you for this cheese puffs and Coca-Cola. As if, if now, now bless that food to my body. Is God really going to bless cheese puffs and Coca-Cola to your body? Let's be honest. Now, we can give thanks for those because we like them and they're tasty, but the truth is, they're not going to be good for us. No, 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 the point is this. The point is, we give thanks because we recognize it's from God. God, thank you for putting food on my table. Thank you for giving me parents that worked hard for your kids. Thank you, Lord, for giving me a job where I could provide for this. If you don't have a job, thank you, Lord, for a government that feels like it's right to look after the poor. Thank you, God, because you're the one who does these things. This is important because... Thanking God is us acknowledging His generosity. And here's the thing. The more you feel like you, you're in need, the more important it is for you to give thanks. Because I'll tell you what, the more you give thanks, the more perspective you have on how generous God's already been. And when you recognize how generous God has already been, not only are you going to be generous, but you're going to expect the God, that God to provide whatever you need. Now keep going. Drop, drop over to... All the way to the end of chapter 16 for a second. Verse 37 of chapter 16. Still on this whole idea of um, the generosity of God motivating our worship. 
So this is kind of uh, after we'll see in a minute the psalm that was uh, read or spoken or sung. It says, So he, that's David, left Asaph and his brothers before the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. Then he names the people that are helping there in Jerusalem. And then in verse 39 he says, And Zadok the priest and his brethren the priest, they're basically doing the same thing. They're before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon. To offer burnt offerings to the Lord uh, on the altar of burnt offerings. Notice, regularly, morning and evening, to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which, which he commanded Israel. See, so you, so you notice that both these guys are doing it regularly. Now, here's what you need to know. Jerusalem has become the new, tab, uh, uh, the new center of uh, Israeli life. Jerusalem has become the place where the tabernacle is, or I'm sorry, where the uh, Ark of the Covenant is. But the tabernacle, actually, is still in this place called Gibeon. About a day's walk away. And David doesn't assume that God doesn't want that to happen still. He's felt like the tabernacle, the presence of God should be in the center where we are. But I don't know if the tabernacle should move yet. We'll talk about that in chapter 17 in weeks to come. But he, he, he knows, okay, this is a good thing. So here's what he does. He makes sure that worship's happening in both of those places. Now there's a lesson here for us. Because the thing is, sometimes we want to make a big debate about um, you know, the, the, the kind of distinctive ways that we might worship as individuals. But the issue is not so much, hey, are my worshiping the same way that person says I should worship, or that person says I should worship, or how that person does worship, but that we worship regularly. <laughs> In other words, there's an intentionality to our worship, that we choose to worship. Now, I don't know if, if, if you notice or not. I don't really care. I'm not doing it for you. But I like to raise my hands and close my eyes. And my kids make fun of me, the sway thing that I do. This sway thing, you know, when I worship. It's got nothing to do with anything except for it helps me concentrate on the God I'm singing to. Now, I, I, it's not like I'm sitting there all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes upon me and I can't help myself. My arms go up. No. I, I probably told this story before, but I remember... Um, when I was doing youth ministry in the States, uh, a, young, a young person came to me and said, you know, I, I want to worship God like, like you guys worship God. I'm all great. Well, what's holding you back? I, I need the gift. That, you know, that gift. I need God to give me the gift of raising my hands. I'm all, dude, it's shoulder muscles. Do this. That's it. Ready? Put your hands up. There's, there's some gift there. And, and again, and there's no, it's not like more spiritual to raise your hands or one hand or whatever. None of that's more spiritual than anything else. It's about though, listen, it is about saying, God, I want to consistently worship. So I want to do whatever it takes for me to turn my affections towards you. To turn my thoughts towards you. It helps me, close my eyes, raise my hands. It helps me to sit in the back. In fact, one of the things, or sit in the front. You know one of the good things about sitting in the front is? This is a hint that you should sit in the front. It, it is that you, sometimes I can just stop and listen to everybody sing. I got to say, man, at the men's retreat, my favorite part of the men's retreat this year was hearing men belt out those songs to Jesus. It, it, it's, you know, no offense, ladies, but there's something glorious about men unashamedly singing to Jesus. It's powerful. It's powerful. But when we do that together, men and women, brothers and sisters, and, and whatever, whatever sort of bodily position helps us concentrate on God, and we're being intentional on a regular basis, you know what happens? We're transformed by that. It's not as if God needs our worship. It's that God uses our worship to change our hearts, to prioritize our lives. 
You see, this is what happens. And this is how it connects to generosity. Listen. When we, when we are intentionally consistent in our worship, it's reflecting God's, uh, God's generosity. You know why? Because God is continually consistent in His generosity to us. Always. Always. Look, I, I don't know what kind of morning you've had or what kind of week you've had. If it's been good, bad, a mix. Probably a mix. But God's done good things for you. And that gives you reason to worship. Now, lastly, there's a lot of verses, but we're going to go really fast on purpose. From verses 7 all the way down to verse 36, uh, this psalm. It says in verse one of chapter, uh, verse seven of chapter sixteen, on the day that David first delivered the psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank God, and then it goes in the psalm. And you need to know this: this is one psalm here in chapter sixteen. It's actually three psalms in the Psalms. It's I think one o five in the beginning, one o six, like a few verses from one o six at the end, and in the middle it's Psalm ninety six. So this, this, this probably wasn't, here's the lyrics that they sung. This was setting off sort of the temple. Here's the themes they sung about. That's probably why, why, why the author of Chronicles put this in. And so I want to talk about these themes, okay? Because here's the thing that we want to see lastly, okay? It's the trustworthiness of God that motivates faithful worship. So look at verse 7. Let's talk about what we mean by faithful. On that day, I'm sorry, uh, for verse 7, it says, here's when they start singing the song. It says, oh, give thanks to the Lord. I want you to notice the action words here. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the people. Sing to Him. Sing songs to Him. Talk of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who rejoice seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek his face forevermore. In fact, go over to verse 23 and 24. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His wonders among all peoples. Do you see the different words there? Those words are being used because we need to understand when we're talking about faithful worship, faithful means multifaceted, multifaceted heartfelt response. It's not just singing. Singing, yes, but not just singing. It's just as worshipful to talk about how good God is as it is to sing about who, how good God is. I don't want to embarrass him, but uh, I had such a, a great time driving to and from the retreat uh, with Frankie. If you spent time with Francis, you know, you know he loves to talk. In fact, I was exhausted on the way back. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry, Johnny. I'm wearing you out, aren't I? But he wasn't. It was great because he was just talking about how good God was and how faithful God was to meet us at the men's retreat and how, how, how the Lord, he kind of would just break into prayer. Oh, the Lord's so good and the Lord bless my brother Johnny. And it was great. He wasn't singing to the Lord. He does that a lot too. But he was just talking about God and it was worship. Notice in verses 23 and 24, it's describing mission. Telling unbelievers about Jesus. That is worship. In fact, let me tell you something. Listen, let me tell you. If you have a hard time sharing your faith, it's probably because you need to move into worship. Because if you share your faith because you feel guilty that you don't share it enough, that's, you're not going to be the greatest witness. People are going to know you feel guilty. They're going to see the religiosity of that, aren't they? 
But when you believe that God is as good as he is, and that God, the God who made covenant with you wants to make covenant with the person you're talking to, and you begin to share that, you know what that is? It's worship. Faithful worship comes in many different shapes. But it's always about pointing people back to Jesus. This is why corporate worship is so important. Again, another reason why I try to physically engage in worship. It's not because I think, oh, they're going to think less of me if I don't raise my hands. No, it's because, one, I need to do it for myself. But also, I want to encourage you guys to do this. John Calvin, the famous Reformed thinker, of many centuries ago, he, he, he's often connected to, to worship that's quite sort of controlled and, and reserved. But he said, let us not be lazy. Let us to stir one another up through the raisins of hands and the shouting of praise. That's what John Calvin said. This is how we need to be. No, this, this, is, this is what God calls us to God, you're trustworthy and you're worthy to be talked about and sung about and thought about and sought after. If you don't think you can trust God, you'll never seek him. Or if you do, you'll seek him out of fear because you're afraid he's going to zap you. But if you understand what he's done for you in Christ, if you put your faith in him, how can we not but seek him? How can we not but seek him? So that's the first thing I want you to see about faithful worship. It means multifaceted, heartfelt response. Second thing I want you to see about this and about how the trustworthy of God motivates this is that faithful means remembering what God has already done. Look at verse 12. In verse 12 it says, Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham. His oath to Isaac. And he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. To Israel for an everlasting covenant. Saying, I will give you the land of Canaan as an allotment of your inheritance. When you were few in numbers, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When we went, they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sake, saying, do not touch my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. So what he does in those verses, he gives a synopsis of all of Israel's history. And says, look back at your history, people. How faithful has God been to you? What has he done for you in making an everlasting covenant? This is why Jesus orders communion. The, the, the taking of the bread and the wine. Right? Paul told us that in, in, one, in 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul's kind of laying out how communion should work, there's, there's structure for that as well. But when he lays that out, he says, he says, he quotes Jesus as saying, both with the bread and the wine, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Remember what the Lord's done for you. Remember what the Lord's done for you. God's for us. His covenant proves it. Now, this whole issue about remembering too, it's really important because, can we be honest? We forget, don't we? And, and one of the things, too, that, that if you've been in church, if, if you've been sitting in church for a while, you've probably had this experience where you sit there and go, oh, yeah, okay, whatever, preacher, hurry up, I've heard this before. 
You might not want to admit that, but you've probably felt that before, right? But what that is, is less not realizing that remembering is worship. Remembering is worship. Thinking afresh about something you already know is worship. Listen to this. What does Peter write to his, uh, his readers in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter? Listen to this. Peter writes, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. In other words, Peter says, until I die, I'm going to keep reminding you of what the truth is. He says in the second letter, he says, listen, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. You need to hear the stuff again and again and again. I've read the New Testament now probably about been a Christian for 32 years, so probably about 40 times at least. At least 40 times. Do you know why I've read it so many times? I need to remember what it says. I've read through the Old Testament probably 25 times. And I'm learning new stuff all the time, but it's not just about gaining new information, it's about remembering the truth of what God's done for me. That itself, in the act of remembrance, is worship. That's what it means to be faithful. Lastly, Verses 25 to 26, 36, I'm almost done. In fact, the music team can come back up. We're going to respond to the Lord in song. But he writes, I'm going to just read these through, go back and meditate on them, but I want you to notice a couple things. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him and worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. Holiness is a way to say there is no one like Him. It's, it is moral purity, but it's much bigger than that. It's the fact that there's none like Him. It says, tremble before Him all the earth. In other words, being afraid or having a fear that, oh man, I, I got, you know, God can do whatever He wants, and that's a scary thing. That by itself is also part of worship. Come before him all the earth. The world is, is firmly established. It shall not be moved. God's in control. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice in all that is in it. Let the trees of the woods uh, shall rejoice before the Lord. Notice, for he is coming to judge the earth. If you're sick of the injustice in this world, this is good news. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His mercy endures forever. And notice this last bit. And, and, they, and say, here's the prayer. We're giving the prayer. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together. Deliver us from the Gentiles. Read non-believers there who persecute us. Give thanks to, to your holy name. To triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said... And praised the Lord. Faithful worship means we trust God for what he's promised to do. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 5. The throne that we look forward to being around. Here's the image that we're given. Where all the saints are around the throne. Here's what they say to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to open it. In other words, you're worthy to, to be the fulfillment of all history. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. That's what we have to look forward to. 
that's worthy. That makes God worthy to be worshipped. Amen?